KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, June 14th. What change would look like for deported veterans? More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. It's official, most of California's coronavirus rules governing public gatherings will disappear on Tuesday. Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order on Friday afternoon that will end the stay-at-home orders and its various amendments. This comes as roughly 70% of adults across the state have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Starting Tuesday, there's no more capacity limits, physical distancing requirements, and people who are fully vaccinated can forget the mask. And in that same light, a back-together San Diego County celebration of the lifting of COVID-19 restrictions will be held tomorrow morning at the County Administration Center. Supervisor Nathan Fletcher will be hosting the celebration bright and early at 6.30 a.m. There will be live music, free breakfast, snacks and refreshments, and a ribbon-cutting ceremony. Do you remember that mystery boom last Tuesday, the uh, skyquake? It happened around 8 p.m.-ish Tuesday night. Big, loud boom shook the whole county and Tijuana. If you had guessed that it was a military aircraft, you might just be right. MCAS Miramar says they did indeed have two aircraft out training at that time, about 30 miles southwest of San Diego, over the Pacific Ocean. They also say that while they can't account for every skyquake, that one might have been on them. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Over the past several decades, hundreds or perhaps thousands of U.S. military veterans have been deported for committing crimes after they left the service. Now many are looking to the Biden administration, hoping for the chance to finally return to the United States. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh says some vets have waited for years. For others, their time's run out. Jose Velasco came to the U.S. from Mexico as a child. As a green card holder, he was drafted during the Vietnam War era. Charged with assault with a deadly weapon and deported three years ago, at age 76, he's now living in Tijuana. I never, I never even knew Tijuana. Didn't have anybody here. 
I'm still here. I, I, I felt like the sky was coming down on me. Bad. Velasco is one of the former U.S. service members who are trying to get back to the country where they served and lived most of their lives. His health declining. He knows the clock is ticking. Yeah, drunk if you don't know. Hector Barajas runs the Deported Veteran Support House in Tijuana, a place nicknamed the Bunker. Yeah, I gotta take a, I gotta go across the border too. Barajas was deported himself, but was able to become a citizen after he was pardoned by the governor of California. Like many people, he started the citizenship process while he was still in the army during the first Gulf War, but didn't finish. Never, never, immigration never came up, not even for my squad leaders, you know. Military service can be a fast track to citizenship, especially during wartime. But some people were incorrectly told they automatically become U.S. citizens when they take the military oath. Others lose track of the process as they move around. Barajas says the system has been broken for years, but things became particularly difficult under the Trump administration. The administration took away uh, this policy that was in place that made it easier to become a citizen when you're in the military. And so now it's better if you file for your citizenship when you're out of the military. It's faster. Richard Avila has been in Tijuana for a decade after being deported because of a felony immigration charge. He came to the U.S. as a child and volunteered to join the Marines at the tail end of the Vietnam era. He speaks Spanish with a thick American accent that draws unwanted attention in Mexico. The word is pocho. It's kind of a derogatory term, uh, meaning that you're Mexican raised in America. In other words, kind of like a traitor because you're not in Mexico, you're, you're raised in the U.S. Advocates are asking the Biden administration to reverse policies that make it harder for troops to apply for citizenship and reinstate a program that walks them through the process before they leave boot camp. Jenny Pascarella with the ACLU of Southern California also wants a moratorium on deporting veterans and for those already deported. To create a pathway so that they can return home. And, and that's where I think that the administration could adopt a policy or a process that would allow for reopening their immigration case. For some, any change has already come too late. Norma Apolaco remembers telling her mother that time had run out for her brother, a former Marine. <laughs> so I said, don't let it hit you right now. Let's get in the car and let's go. Erasmo Apolaca died of a heart attack in Mexico while waiting to return to the U.S. for a second immigration hearing. He fought his deportation for more than a decade, only to die less than two months before his case would be heard. We never imagined that my brother would have ended up deported as a veteran to Mexico. My parents, my brothers, um, were all here in the United States. All of the veterans caught in this cycle have felonies on their record. Still, Norma says they serve their country. These people made mistakes. They paid a price. They need to be given an opportunity to do best. Not by getting rid of them, by sending them here. You're somebody else's problem. No. Though at the moment, little has changed. That was KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
California has over a billion dollars in aid to give out to struggling renters and landlords, but so far, a little less than three percent of that money has actually gone out, and far fewer people have applied to the state program than expected. As KQED's Aaron Baldessari explains, the state has made some changes to get more money out more quickly. Jackie Lowry lives with her extended family in Antioch. Her husband, son, and daughter-in-law all lost their jobs on the same day last March, right after the pandemic hit. Now they owe about $11,000 in unpaid rent. Lowry's family filed for rent relief as soon as they could. We have heard absolutely nothing back yet. Nothing back, and that was in March. Officials at the Housing and Community Development Department say just over 4,000 people have received assistance out of around 190,000 who've applied. Jessica Hayes with the department says the state has moved slowly to make sure no one got paid twice and to serve the people with the lowest incomes first. We've been able to increase the number of households that we're processing through the application each week. And we expect that to continue as we continue to ramp up and add more staff. But Hayes also said the state has only received applications for about $543 million in rent relief. That's about a third of the money that's currently available. Applicants have had a hard time slogging through a clunky and complicated process. That process will now be streamlined and require fewer documents. Advocates are pushing the legislature to extend the state's eviction moratorium beyond June 30th. And that was KQED's Aaron Baldessari. The recall election against Governor Gavin Newsom will cost California counties $215 million. That's according to a new analysis from the State Department of Finance. KQED's politics reporter Guy Marzarotti has more. A recall election will require counties to spend millions sending every voter a ballot and setting up in-person voting. The Democratic leaders of the state Senate and Assembly say they'll cover those costs in the upcoming state budget. And with a price tag in hand, the legislature won't need the 30 days that state law gives them to study the cost of the election. That could result in a recall vote later this summer rather than in the fall as previously expected. And that was KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarotti. Coming up, the problem with gun restraining orders is that a lot of people, even police, don't understand them and don't know how to use them. We'll have that story next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. It's been more than two weeks since a gunman in San Jose killed nine people at a rail yard. Shortly after the shooting, officials started talking about red flag laws, asking if they might have prevented the shooting from happening. KQED's Aditi Bonlamudi reports from San Jose. Red flag laws are actually a nickname for a gun violence restraining order used on people who raise red flags, people in danger of harming themselves or others, and in the possession of firearms. 
California was one of the first states in the country to pass such a law back in 2014. But not many law enforcement agencies have used the order, including in Santa Clara County, home to San Jose, where the mass shooting happened. District Attorney Jeff Rosen says during the first few years after the law was passed, the county issued less than 10 red flag orders a year. Police officers get phone calls, get 911 calls from neighbors, family members, coworkers. Hey, this person I know is threatening to kill themselves or others. The police officers would respond and they wouldn't know that they could get a gun violence restraining order and remove the guns. So in 2018, a number of counties began streamlining the process and improving the way law enforcement officers are trained to use the law. At last report, Santa Clara, along with San Diego and Orange counties, led the state for the most red flag orders issued. Now we're taking the next step of public service announcements and training to businesses to educate them. So how does this law work if you're afraid someone close to you might use a gun to hurt themselves or others? After you call the police and ask for a red flag order, your request will make its way to a judge who will ask for evidence that this person is in danger. Presuming you can provide that, the judge will order the person to surrender their guns and ammo for at least 21 days and send law enforcement over to collect the guns. California's red flag law was recently expanded in 2019 to allow coworkers, educators, and employers to request the orders. Assemblymember Phil Ting of San Francisco wrote that bill. We saw over and over again shootings occur at schools as well as at workplaces. And so it made sense to expand uh, gun violence restraining orders beyond the people uh, who could get them, which were family members and law enforcement. Even though we're talking about the law in the context of the mass shooting in San Jose, these orders are more commonly used to prevent suicide or domestic violence. Esther Parales-Diekman runs Next Door Solutions to Domestic Violence in San Jose. We find that people who perpetrate violence are very focused on hurting and abusing the victim, and they're not necessarily concerned about their restraining order. She says there are a variety of reasons a victim might not want to make the call. The victim could be undocumented. The police might not show up fast enough. The aggressor could be in law enforcement. And if a child is involved, frequent 911 calls could be used against the victim in custody hearings. Parales Diekman says there has to be a way to stop the cycle of violence before it gets to the point someone needs to invoke the red flag law. Because, she reminds us, mass shooters often turn out to be people accused of domestic violence in the past. How do you prevent violence? Because it is learned behavior. And what the studies show is in some of these situations, perpetrators were exposed to violence much earlier in life. Either they were children who were somehow exposed to abuse or observed domestic violence. So it is learned behavior. Why did no one call in the San Jose shooter? Well, he lived alone at the time. Also, the red flag law expansion to include more people who could have called went into effect shortly before the pandemic. Had one or more of the shooter's co-workers known about the law, they might have called. But all of that's conjecture in hindsight. And that was KQED's Aditi Banlamudi reporting from San Jose. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.